0: Welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, did you miss soccer? Because I, I miss soccer a little bit over the last few days.
1: I did. It almost I miss it so much that I almost felt weird watching it again because it was just so overloaded for a while that now maybe... You know, distance does make the heart grow fonder.
0: (laughs) I'm sort of holding on to these last few games because (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. Yes, it seems like we're going to get more of the MLS season going forward, but that's all still unknown. And I'm just really attaching myself to these last three games. Now, two games after we got our first taste of semifinal action tonight with the Portland Timbers 2-1 win over the Philadelphia Union.
1: Wow. Gosh, let's dive. Let's just dive straight in.
0: Let's do it. I I think in this game we saw, and you and I talked a little bit before we hit the record button, we saw some things that we expected to see. Yeah. We saw two teams, neither one of which really was itching to control possession and control the tempo of the game. But then a goal happens early in this game that forces that.
1: Right. And I think to hit those points a little bit harder before we get into the goal is we expected Portland to sit in a block which they're so good at, and strike on a counter. And they sat on in a block, I would say maybe one of their most compact and centrally... Um, overloaded? Clogged up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, overloaded <laughs> blocks that I've seen them play in yet, really trying to deny Aaronson the ball. And then Philly doing what they love. There was times where... All four of their midfielders were on one side of the field if you were to cut it in half uh, vertically. And that's crazy. They were all on the right side, really trying to press down that right side. And it really wasn't working.
0: And we'll talk more about that as as our analysis of the game progresses. Let's start with that first goal. It's in the 13th minute. It's a corner kick goal. From Diego Valeri taking an outswinging corner into Jeremy Obobese, and he heads it in in the box to give the Timbers that 1-0 lead. There's a number of different elements of this corner kick and why the Timbers were able to get on the board first here. What did you see and what did you focus on for this goal for the Timbers?
1: Well, first, as a player, I just always liked outswinging corners. To me, it was easier to get your head on it. It's coming back at you as a player running in. And the transfer of energy there to redirect the ball just to me was... Kind of my sweet spot. I like that. So maybe that helped in the end with Abobasi's placement because he really did place it very nicely. But I got to say, for me, I know I talked about this uh on, I can't remember which podcast previously, but zonal marking, I always say marking, zonal defending versus man marking on corner kicks. And I know that you're going to talk about the man marking that was a little bit of a misstep there. Because I always Abob- do. Yeah, with Obobese and Wagner. But for me, I am looking at the zone player. And maybe that's because I was the zone player, right? So I was always, that's where my attention lies. I think Shabilko's, one, I think his positioning is too close to the near post. So he's not quite centralized enough because both of the balls, both, when we talk about both these goals, they both went right over his head. If you are the free player, you must go hunt the ball, especially when it's that close to you. So if you are going to head the ball, the more space you have to react and move towards the ball, the better. So honestly, your first step should always be backwards, backwards, check the fly to the ball and then go to head it. And I think Shabilko just gets caught going forward too quickly. The ball goes over his head and then there's this huge pocket of space that Abobasi ends up capitalizing on. And that's a lot to talk about for just one little
0: zonal spot, right? And I'm going to do more on the, on the man marking side of things, as you mentioned. To set the scene for how the Union are defending here, they have two zonal defenders towards the ball side of the six yard box, towards the side that Valeria is taking the corner kick from. You talked about one of them, Casper Shabilko. Towards then the penalty spot, the Union are matched up four for four with four Portland attacking players around that penalty area in the middle top area of the box. And the two guys I want to focus on here for Portland on the attacking side is Mabiala and Abobasi. Mabiala is the guy in the cluster furthest from Valeri, and Abobasi is the guy right next to Mabiala. So they're on the leftmost and, and next leftmost player. As Valeri is stepping forward to take the corner kick, Mabiala makes a run towards the ball in front of Ibobesi's marker, and that's Kai Wagner. That run from Mabiala that cuts right in front of Wagner seems to distract him for just a second or or confuse him, and that forces Wagner or that cues Wagner to take his attention off of Abobasi. And when you're marking on the box, whether that's zona marking or man-to-man marking, getting distracted for even a split second is dangerous, and we see it here. We see the difficulty with that here. Abobasi cuts right in front of Wagner, bodies him off a little bit, heads it into the back of the net, and that's one nil to the Portland Timbers.
1: Yeah. A lot of talk about the defensive side of that. Attacking-wise, I talked about the corner kick, but... Abobasi, great, great run, great wherewithal, great placement, too. You could almost see him watch Andre Blake take a step to his right and head it right back where it came from. It was really smart by Abobasi and a a good
0: first goal into this match. Abobasi continues to score goals in different ways. Head, left foot, right foot. It doesn't matter. Maybe it's too small of a sample size. It probably still is. I think he's got now 12, 19 goals for the Timbers in, in the sample size that Fox gave us on the broadcast. That still might not be enough, but man, he can do a lot of different things as a number nine.
1: He's good. He's really growing into who he is within this team, and I think that's only going to help him not only with Portland, but maybe one day beyond that with the men's national team.
0: So after the Portland Timbers go up one nothing in the 13th minute, the game settles into what it looks like for the next 77 plus minutes. There was a lot of stoppage <laughs> right? time in this one, too, but it settles into the same pattern for most of the rest of the match. It's Philadelphia's possession versus a Portland Timbers 4-4-2 block. You touched on this already, but I want to go a little bit deeper into that Portland Timbers low block, if you'll indulge me. Yeah, let's go. So the Timbers are defending well. They're blocking off passing angles into Aronson, into the front two, even into the midfielders, the outside central midfielders, if those guys push forward into the middle, because they're stacking numbers in the three vertical channels on the inside of the field. If you think about the soccer field split up into five different vertical zones, the Timbers were stacked in the middle, trying to force the ball wide into one of those outside channels. The way that they cut off passing angles and funneled the ball out to those spaces where the attacks from the Union are inherently less dangerous, that was such an incredible shift from what we saw from them at the start of the season. When you, Jordan, talked about on this show how many gaps there were in their defensive block and how ineffective they were and how reactive they were in that shape, it was a totally different defensive block from the Timbers in this game compared to those at the start of the season.
1: Yeah, wow. I I remember now that you said that, that game sticks out to me like a sore thumb. Like this is not the same team. They were cohesive. And I really do think the addition of Williamson next to Chara allows for them to have that mobility in there. And I know you're high on him and you talked about him being your player of the game. And he had a great game. Even at the end, I think he was really pushing to almost score a goal and made it difficult for those midfielders to attack. So good call on that, Joe.
0: Thank you. Williamson Williamson and Chara both in this game did a lot of sneaky defending. In the middle mm. of that 4-4-2 block, they would so often creep up behind someone or maybe not creeping up because I'm sure they're coming in with a full head of steam, but they're coming in on the blind side and taking the ball away and either getting into the attack and starting a counterattack or at the very least forcing the union to reset their possession and cycle back and start at ground zero, that was a huge asset for Gio Savarese in the middle of his defensive shape.
1: So this is the right side of Philadelphia's attack that we're talking about, and the middle, but really the left side of Portland's defense, right? That's where a lot of the defending was happening, where a lot of the buildups for the union were starting. But one of the things I noticed, and Joe, I don't know if you noticed this too, which tends to happen if you overload one side of the field, you can isolate on the other, mm-hmm. right? And there were isolations happening. I counted four in about a 20-minute span right after the goal into, what, gosh, the 30-something minutes there. Uh, Wagner and Duvall were getting isolated on the far side. And what was happening is because there were so many numbers forward, for the union. I actually thought it was not a bad look from them. They would switch the point of attack one time through Martinez from the right side, I believe it started with Badoya to Martinez, who is sitting a little bit deeper, probably on the edge of the attacking in the middle third. He plays it to his left to Montero, who automatically quickly finds Wagner on the far side. Now, there's an isolation. Literally no one on the other side of the field, the left side of Philadelphia's attack, except for those two players. So now all these players that were on the right side just shift themselves over and there's four runners in the box for Philly. So this is why I don't mind this look from Philadelphia is because Wagner had a couple, I I counted two crosses that were inches away from potentially Shibilko or Sergio Santos's head. And I count that as a good look for them because they weren't breaking down centrally, right? So they had to do something different.
0: I'm going to be honest, I didn't notice those overload-to-isolate patterns, but that is such an effective way to break down a compact defense, right? The Seattle Sounders, I, I think of this as a Brian Schmetzer thing, not from this past season where they won MLS Cup, but from the year before. So often the Sounders would play stack numbers on the left side and then switch the ball over to the weak side and have their winger run 1v1 versus the opposing left back. It's a little bit of a different situation here, but a similar idea, and that does have merit for the Union Though looking at the middle of the field, Jordan, you mentioned just then how they weren't having success inside. And I think a lot of that was because they were too static in those central areas. It was like how you analyzed NYCFC in their matchup against the Portland Timbers in the quarterfinals. NYCFC's attacking players, and in this game, the unions attacking players in those central spaces were reacting instead of anticipating.
1: Yeah, I I think you nailed it. There there are when teams are in a block, you get into this pattern of moving to the pace of your opponent. And you have to break that habit. I think we saw that with New York City. We saw it here. We saw it with Columbus, I think against Minnesota, is you have to almost one up the level that you think you're playing at because it isn't fast enough. It isn't as anticipating what's it isn't anticipating what's next. It almost becomes reactive because they lull you into this. And Portland lulled them into it. Uh, before we go into the second half, because I know we are moving that way, right, Joe? Can I just talk about Blanco for a second? Please, and then, I wanna,
0: and then I want to touch on the Union's attacking playmaker. So that'll be a good balance we've got there.
1: Okay, well, that's funny because I'm really not going to talk about Blanco attacking at all. Oh, in in the first half... Blanco had 13 either recoveries, tackles, or interceptions. Holy cow. The most of, the most of any player on Portland. Chara had two. Williamson had one. Eleven of his recoveries or tackles or interceptions. I used all those defensive, um, pieces in one because I think they all showed where Blanco was picking up the ball or intercepting, right? Eleven of those 13 were in his defensive half. Six, six of them in his defensive third. He was everywhere. And because he played on the left side, which Philly was trying to attack down the right side, it allowed for him to just be sneaky, right? And cut off the passing lane and and scoop the ball. And then what does he love to do? He loves to be that first point of the counter of playmaking, connecting through the midfield or trying to find, I mean, a lot of the times trying to find Valeri, who then was the next option, looking for the next option up. So I just, you know, you think about Blanco and we've talked a lot about the incredible things he has done on the ball going forward. He, again, was a star tonight, but defensively, like this is a guy who wants to win and will do whatever it takes.
0: He's so good. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that you brought out that defensive side of his game because I'm so caught up oftentimes looking at his work on the ball, on the break, in possession, breaking down blocks. But man, if he's a consistent defensive performer on top of that, it doesn't matter if Savarese plays wow. him as a 10, as a left midfielder, as a right midfielder. You can play him anywhere on the field, and you're going to get legitimate production out of him on both sides of the ball.
1: I just imagine Savarese, like, you know how they always show him reacting when they score a goal? <laughs> and it's like the biggest cheer. Every time Blanco picks the ball up, it intercepts it, recovers it, and he's like, ah!
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. I can see that so easily, too, which is what right? makes it beautiful. I'll touch on on Aronson briefly before we move on to the the second goal and third goal in this game and and wrap this all up in a nice little bow. Brendan Aronson, I I become more and more convinced of this every time I watch him, might not be a number 10 in a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-4-2 diamond like we see him with the Philadelphia Union.
1: All right, tell me more. Tell me more.
0: I think he might be best suited as a As a number eight in a Manchester City like 4-3-3. Think think a very, 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 very reduced Kevin De Bruyne. Only in terms of his positioning. I want to make that very clear. Imagine Aronson as one of the lateral central midfielders in a three-man midfield. Not as a number eight in a 6-8-10 midfield. But Mm -hmm. as one of the two free eights is what a lot of people call them. As the outside central midfielders in that shape. The reason why I, I put him there in my head at least is because I don't think he's very good yet. At going and anticipating space, like I talked about already, and moving into open pockets and getting on the end of passes from his teammates consistently against a compact block. He's so good when he gets the ball and when he can turn out of pressure. We've seen that over and over again, but I'm not sure he creates those chances and those opportunities for himself to get on the ball in a way that you might want from a number 10.
1: One of the things I didn't see as much from him, and maybe this is credit to Portland in the way they defended, but I also think you're right with his lack of movement and creating space or finding the space, is he didn't pull any of those defenders out of a space so then the ball could come into a forward's foot. Hmm. And I think that when it, when I looked a lot at the way that Philly was attacking, it was in that it's a very... um I don't know what type of triangle it is where the two points are even and then the other one's like barely above it. You know, it's I, I'm not good with my uh, geometry. Obviously, school has been too far away, but it's like a very uh, slender triangle. Right. Mm-hmm. Where Aronson almost sits right off the back heel of those two front runners. And if he is a little bit better about running from the central space into that half space that he likes to attack, even sometimes just to run and create space for that next player. I think that might um, pull some defenders out of place, and I don't think we saw that maybe at all until later on in the game.
0: So let's move towards that later on okay. section of this game. Into the second half, the same pattern continues. The Timbers are absorbing pressure, getting out on the break, and that happens more and more as the Union get more desperate to push guys forward. And ultimately, that gets another goal for the Portland Timbers. They get a corner off of a quick transition attack. Diego Valerius corner finds Blanco at the back post this time after Jose Martinez just sort of dips out and doesn't decide to to stick with Blanco at the back post. Zuparich knocks down Valerio's corner kick, heads it forward to Blanco. And again, there's no one around. So he heads it in to make it 2-0. I
1: think if I'm the Philadelphia Union, I cannot believe that we lost the game off of two Corner kicks, not two counterattacks. If it was two counterattacks, you know, Portland's better than us, right? They're better on the counter. They did a good job of breaking us down, right? But no, two corner kicks. And my issue with this one, you mentioned Martinez. And yeah, that was, I don't know what he was doing. Like (laughs) I honestly don't know what he was doing. But for me, it's McKenzie.
0: Hmm.
1: McKenzie was was marking Zuprich and he should have won that ball. He should have. And we've talked a lot about Mackenzie, and I think he is top class player. He has to make that. He has to make that header. He has to be the first one to the ball, or at least make sure Zuprich doesn't head the ball. So I don't know if he trips up. He looks like he's like almost ducking when the ball gets there to Zuprich. So I'm like, what happened in between that? It's hard to tell, right? Because we only get that one angle. And, um, you know, I'm sure he's thinking the same thing.
0: Yeah. I don't doubt that at all. Yeah. So at this right. point, at this point, it's two nothing after that 70th minute, second corner kick goal. Then the union start to put together a bit of a late push. Vooten comes on for Jose Martinez. That gives the union another forward in the attack. And then he scores a goal. He scores a goal off of a free kick from Montero to make it two one. Then Shabilko nearly gets the equalizer oh and my it's gosh. a hair offside, if that. So, a so big close. Big toenail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gotta, tr- yeah, gotta go down gotta a trim Got yeah, gotta do something there. So it's so close. The margins at the end of this game do end up being really, really thin.
1: Yeah. So I want to talk about a couple of things. I thought Philly in and maybe I didn't see this right, but I thought they changed formations a couple times mm-hmm. in the second half. I thought they went to a four-two-three-one for a little bit, and the,
0: the Elsino special.
1: Yes, the Elsino special. But then when Vooten came on, it looked to me like they switched to a five or a three five two and had two front runners. This is what I liked about Vooten, and I, I think it's probably because there are more players in the midfield to play off of But with those two front runners and the way that Portland was playing, he was checking off the back line into the half space between the lines or even into the midfield. And what that did is it pulled a center back just a little bit off the back line, a little bit. And then that run through by a midfielder, that late run or overlapping, I guess you could call run. Run to break the back line. I'm going to call it that. Run to break the back line was on. And I think that Philly did a couple of, did it well and executed it a couple of times. But I think it was too late, right? That movement to pull a defender off the back line and have that run to break the back line from a midfielder, it just, it showed you that it could be done, but there just wasn't enough time.
0: It's almost an encouraging glimpse to what the Philadelphia Union could be. Yeah. If they became this team that's very good in transition, they can press effectively when they choose to, and then if Jim Curtin could transition this team into being, I guess, a jack of all trades and doing it all, and the more I'm talking about this, the less likely this seems, but maybe even just asking for a few of those movements and, and those runs to drag defenders out of position to make them more serviceable in possession, that could take this team from being a good team to being a really, really good team.
1: Right. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that a build up on on the right side with both forwards dragging to the right side or pulling their defenders to the right and then you have Aronson back posts like fading off the the center backs, right? I think that there are possibilities there and um you know Philly grew through the tournament. And I think that this game didn't show a lot of what we had seen from them, especially in last game, right? We saw them be able to break a team, especially on a counter, really well. So um, I think there's a lot to build off of this for Philly. And I know they probably aren't happy they made it to the semis and then lost. But this is a, a team who... If I'm in the Eastern Conference, I'm watching out for them because they've got a good structure of what who they want to be and what they want to build off of.
0: And that's something that I, I think we can say about all four teams, three yeah. teams now left in this tournament. Looking specifically at the Portland Timbers, and I think this is maybe a good place to close the show, the Timbers are good at what they do. They mm-hmm. know who they are and they execute it well. They did that in this game 100%. And when you do those things as a team, when you do what you do well, you're gonna be hard to beat. Portland was hard to beat tonight, and they're gonna be hard to beat next week when they play in the final against the winner of tomorrow night's semifinal. Minnesota United versus Orlando City.
1: Oh my gosh, it's going down tomorrow, huh?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be here. We'll be here to cover that game tomorrow night. We'll have our our show out late in the evening, maybe early enough before you go to bed. But at right? the very at the very least, it'll be out in the morning so that you can listen to our analysis of Minnesota United, Orlando City, just like we had out tonight for Portland, Philadelphia.
1: Yeah. And just thank you, guys. Thanks for the comments. Thanks for sending us clips. Thanks for interacting with us on Twitter and liking and subscribing, rating, whatever you do, all those things for the podcast. Really, it is, we're really appreciative.
0: You're so much better at, at doing that than I am, Jordan, about giving credit. Whatever. But yes, yeah, seriously, thank you guys for listening. <laughs> the fact that we talk about Major League Soccer tactics is still... Mind blowing Crazy to right? So thank you to Every single one of you For listening Jordan thank you as well For chatting with me And we'll be back again tomorrow
1: Thank you Joe I'll see you tomorrow